Coming to you from the lab where they talk about guns, gear, training, and everything in between. Here are your hosts, Mike and Big Key, and this is The Gun Experiment. How's it going, everybody, and welcome to The Gun Experiment. This week, Keith and I talk to the CEO for one of the premier training facilities in the Northeast and take a deeper dive into carbine classes and SPR setups. I want to remind everyone that we release new content every Tuesday morning, so be sure to subscribe and share the show with friends. This episode is brought to you by Target Sports USA. Be sure to check out their ammo membership, which gets you 8% off, free shipping on all ammo orders, and a whole lot more, all for $95 a year. If you'd like to sign up or purchase ammo, please go to targetsportsusa.com forward slash the gun experiment. And as always, I cannot start the show without the big man across the table. My co-host, Big Keith, is in the house. Keith, how are we doing? Happy to be back in the house. Yeah, it was weird last week, right? Yeah, and uh, I remembered as we were getting ready to start that we had a really a spirited discussion on the episode last week. I, I uh, Did you listen to it again? Because I'm curious how... I did. I cut out some of it. Okay. <laughs> I edited some of it okay. down because I was like, ah, no one's easier us battle we, back and we forth. We were like just a, battling back and forth. Bickering right? like a couple of housewives. <laughs> well, uh, there was a point in time where the light bulb went off that that's what we were doing. Yeah. And uh, I was like, huh, interesting. Normally, I feel like you dig in a little deeper than me, but you actually were the one who got us back on track. Oh, that's so strange. It was strange. I said, boy. I must have been because uh, uh, our guest was on I Respect. So Yeah, you really do like that guest. <laughs> I mean, we can say Jackie, right? This yeah, is, I yeah, think you could Jackie, say it. Jackie's on the show. So. I should have said it. Yeah, it's okay. So uh, how's everything going? Uh, everything's going pretty well. I am damn near tired of those inflatables in my front yard. I will tell you that. Yeah. Um, well, they, uh, they just get knock over. I don't care what I, how I, I'm going to have to tie those things down with a body or something. By the time this airs, they should be down, right? I don't know. I don't know when this airs. Right. Why, why would you, <laughs> why would you take, why would, why would you know of such things? I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I want to get into today's show. Uh, before I do that, if I could ask the listeners for one thing, a small request, if you enjoy the show and you're not already, make sure you're subscribing and then go on to Apple Podcasts. If that's where you listen, leave us a five-star review and a comment. If you listen on Spotify, just leave the five-star review. And if you listen to other places, well, it is what it is and listen where you can and subscribe, of course. Anyway, our interview is brought to you by Flatline Fiberco. Flatline creates quality sewn goods for the firearms community. Whether you're looking for a new sling or maybe some ear pro wraps to make range sessions more comfortable, they've got you covered. All products are made by hand in the USA, including free shipping, and have a lifetime warranty. Use the discount code GUNEXPERIMENT10 at checkout to get 10% off. And of course, thank you for supporting the companies that support the show. Today's guest is a former Marine Corps scout sniper with multiple deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. After leaving active service in 2016, he would go on to create a purpose-built training facility in New Hampshire designed to support world-class training for the tactical community. Please welcome the CEO of Ridgeline Defense, Alex Hartman, to the show. Alex, how are we doing? I'm doing well, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming. Of course. Yeah, thanks for being here. So, how are you doing tonight? Uh, today was a good day. Actually, we've got... Um a lot of stuff uh, kind of going on behind the scenes right now, and uh, it's it's uh, super exciting. And uh, I kind of have to play it close to the chest for now, but we're going to be super excited to share it with everybody here uh, towards the end of next year. So we're we're pretty stoked, but it's been a a lot of work, and there's a a ton more left to go. But today was uh, a good day. Awesome. Well. I have to say that I went to your website, obviously in preparation for this show, and you have an amazing facility. It's quite remarkable, 
And I can only imagine what it must be like to have that as your playground. <laughs> it must be very nice. Uh, you would think, right? Um, <laughs> and, and it is, you know, but uh, it, it's funny. You know, we, we, we rarely get to use it. <laughs> you know, it's, we're always, uh, you know, teaching on it or, or running events or stuff like that. So, you yeah, know, it's every, every now and again, we get some free downtime and, you know, all of the instructors and the staff, we get out and we get to kind of play. And, um, and then it's, it's a ton of fun to be able to exploit, you know, all the stuff that we have. And, and, uh, you know, there's always, you know, after, after class and you know, all the staff and we're together, it's a, uh, it's a game of one upsmanship for sure. So it's just, uh, you know, we burn a ton of rounds and have a ton of, uh, a ton of fun doing it. And, uh, it's, there's worse ways to, to make a living. That's for sure. Do you get to shoot much at all or, or, uh, just not at the, at your particular facility? Oh, uh, no. I mean, we shoot, we shoot a lot. Um, you know, I just, at the end of, uh, you know, I'm always jealous of students, right. You know, especially <laughs> with some of my other staff, you know, they get going and, uh, I'm sitting here like, man, I can Good. shoot today That's right now. <laughs> um, but, uh, so I'm always kind of jealous of the students. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. So we, we get to, we get to play a lot and, and have, a good time. I mean, so it's, it's kind of a, a playground for sure. Well, I'm not used to seeing something so remarkable, so close to New York. It seems like it would be quite the undertaking. Can you take us back to the start of all of this and how Ridgeline came to fruition? Yeah. Um, it's, uh, I'll try to keep it as brief as possible, but, um, essentially, you know, when I left active service, um, you know, I, I had a, a slightly turbulent exit, um, you know, plans that were in place kind of didn't come through, which is pretty standard, I think for most guys. Uh, but I was going to school, um, and when I was just kind of teaching, like I kind of just, you know, got into shooting super heavy in the Marine Corps, obviously. And, um, <clears throat> when I got back, there was really nothing like I was accustomed to, uh, up here. Like I had kind of become accustomed to down North Carolina. And so, uh, kind of just by immersing myself in what I could find around here through, you know, pistol competitions and, and uh, shooting in general. Um, and then through the, from local law enforcement, uh, I kind of just got started teaching, um, kind of by accident and definitely without a purpose. Um, and, uh, the veterans, uh, director of like veterans affairs, or, or I, I can't remember his exact title at the college. He was a former air force guy. And he mentioned, you know, kind of, they knew what I did. I, I kind of started to help launch the, the sort of action shooting team at the, at the university I was at. Um, and the, you know, he asked like, Hey, you know, if you ever want to grow a business, like there's a, a sort of a veterans incubator here at the college, if you will. Um, and I was like, you probably teach people how to shoot. Like, it's not a real business. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, uh, after giving it some more and more thought, I was able to kind of figure out what was going to be, um, it was a different business model than we have now, but, uh, kind of put that model together and went to work on uh, building the facility. Uh, we identified our first location or our first, uh, anticipated or, or um, uh, the first location we wanted to build out using that different model. And, uh, you know, unfortunately as, as we got kind of, uh, embroiled in the legal, uh, process there, um, we decided to sort of <clears throat> seek life elsewhere after the dust settled. Uh, and then sort of by, again, just fortuitous chain of events, uh, I was introduced to the guys up at the team O'Neill rally school. Um, <clears throat> and so we started working with them in 2018 and in the fall of 2018, the then manager, now uh, CEO and, and owner, um, 
asked me to uh, kind of start up on board their facility. Uh, and then kind of while we were planning that build out, uh, the, there was a cowboy action range actually across the street that became available. And so we were able to secure that location and um, start to like renovate it to meet certain uh, government specifications in terms of uh, safety and layout and everything like that uh, to support our, our new client base. And so that's kind of what took us up till now. Um, it was definitely a build the airplane. I'm sorry, go ahead. I have a, just a little bit of, uh, uh, I guess, clarifying question. So, you know, I was reading a bunch of things and this is, you were going through this for a long time, right? Like seven years, right? This is like, this all started many years ago. You were trying to set something up and this is kind of where you landed, right? So we started the project in 2016 uh, and we we landed in, in our current home in Dalton, New Hampshire in 2018. Okay. Uh, fall of 2018. And uh, we, we assumed control of the property uh, January 1st, 2019. And even when you got there, there was problems in the beginning, right? Like there, were there land use problems or something? Like there were some people who didn't want you doing what you were doing? No, no. The town where we're at now has been very, very receptive. Okay. Um, and, and we... As there was, you know, was there uh, somewhere that I read that that was the case? Yes. That was that original location that we had, we had, uh, had attempted to build out in. Um, there was a... Uh, we had actually kind of silenced all of the... Well, we hadn't silenced the critics, but we had, we had basically painted the zoning board into a corner. There was no way that they could not give us uh, the variance we needed uh, other than just to deny it, um, which they knew would land them in, in some more legal issues. So, uh, but once we moved on from there, um, and well, it, it sounds like you did the best, best decision possible. <laughs> yeah, if you're picking up what I'm putting down, there's, there's some stuff that I, I, I yeah. can't. Yeah. No, I, no. And we didn't want to put you on the spot, so to speak. I just wanted some clarity for the listeners that, you know, from my understanding of, of learning about you, you know, this didn't happen overnight. You know, you had some struggles along the way. And like we talk about in, you know, different context is not just the one we're describing with you. Sometimes dealing with local politics can be a pain in the butt. Yeah. Well, and just being in the two a sphere, whether it's podcasting or in, instructional, like what you're doing, uh, you know, this is a hot button topic and anytime you're dealing with it, there's going to be a little bit of, you know, a little bit of hairiness you got to deal with. And let me take this kind of in a little bit of a di different direction, but on still on topic here. When you're, doing this and you're creating your business model and you say, I want to create this range, you have, uh, I believe your property's 80 acres, correct? Uh, we're Ish? actually about 130. Okay. Now. So you have all this land, you have the sort of, uh, all the paperwork in place and now you have the, the proper political, political parts taken care of. And now you have to create this range, right? What goes into that? As you're doing this, like, was this something that you're like, I already know what I'm doing or like, how did the planning phase, like, let's just say that I stumble onto 80, hundred acres uh, here in New York and I want to do the same thing. Where do you begin to build this operational playground? So I had a leg up in the fact that we had been traveling the country teaching uh, and, you know, I'd spent a ton of time at different ranges, you know, throughout the OD. Uh, the rest of the staff at Ridgeline is similar, um, similar experiences. Right. So we knew a lot of like what sucked <laughs> to yeah. be quite honest. Right. Sure. And so when we sat down, you know, we didn't have the exact layout in mind, but we, we had made at least mental notes, if not actual notes of 
things we liked, things we didn't like, things we saw as problems, operational issues, issues with efficiency, issues with safety, um, and just kind of went down the line and then let, you know, we are, we are also in the, the Northern Ed part of the White Mountains. So we do, uh, we're up in the presidential range. And so we do have, you know, some pretty serious terrain where we're at. So part of that is going to influence, you know, what you want versus what you can do, you know, with a realistic budget, right? Anything's possible, give me enough money and time, but sure. being realistic again, we were, we were a bootstrap business. Um, you know, I like to joke, like started with, you know, $40 worth of Vista print business cards. <laughs> here we are today. Um, and that's, that's straight up. That's, a, that's exactly how it went down. It's not a joke. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you yeah, know, that's exactly how it went down, but no, I mean, there, there are resources out there for people. If, if there, there are actual people that do it for a living, um, that are basically kind of like uh, range design civil engineers. Yep. Um, and, and it is quite honestly a massive civil engineering project. I mean, there's things that people don't think about when it comes to ranges and you can tell, right. Um, water runoff drainage, um, you know, where, where's that water going? You know, how are you, uh, how are your berms constructed? Are they cast? Are they dug? You know, it, it's, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it and you kind of have to know what you're getting into and what the, the long range plan is. And I, I would say my biggest piece of advice is when you, identify, select, you know, inherit, purchase, whatever a property you're thinking about doing a project like this or, or any range on is don't think you can phase it, you know, based on budget, based on time. That was one of the things that like COVID was a double-edged sword for us, right? Because yeah, we, we could kind of kick everybody out, but it also gave us, we didn't have to kind of overlap schedules and build right. out. Yeah. You had the time you needed. Yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword for us on that. Um, but you know, again, we've—if it hadn't been for that sort of like timeout, we'd never be where we are today. Um, we just wouldn't have the time to to go as as ham. Um, yeah, I can relate to that because I'd always wanted a podcast, and when COVID hit, I had all this newfound time on my hands, and I was like, "Well, if I'm ever going to do it, now's the time." So very similarly, this this project that I created and has done very well in the last couple of years is all because of COVID. So I can kind of relate to that, you know? Um, you know, the one thing I would, the one piece of advice I give to anybody is understand what end state looks like. An end state could be 15 or 20 years down the line, but understand what you want the finished product to look like and then chart your course to that versus, and I'm sure you guys have been to other facilities or ranges where everything seems, you're like, man, why would they do it like this? Well, it's because they never planned on doing it, right? right? Yeah. Just kind of kept adding to it. I mean, you guys are in New York, so you, you're familiar with all the old uh, houses and stuff up here in New England. You know, I grew up working construction. You, know, you walk into these houses and you're like, who the hell would build this like that? <laughs> yeah. And at the end of the day, you realize, well, oh, well, it's just, you know, each generation kind of added one more thing. You know what I mean? And here you are a couple hundred years later. And that's, that's really what I see in a lot of facilities and ranges and why they're not as good as they could be. And they, they kind of destroy the raw potential that the land or the property has right. because they don't have that end state plan. And yeah. So it's like the idea of coming up with a master plan. And even if you're just starting with one little piece of that master plan, it's knowing where the end goal is supposed to be. Yep, absolutely. I mean, not not only will it allow for a better end product when you get there, it's going to allow you to, to structure the project in a way that's better. Um you know, you can, you can understand, okay, you know, secondary and, and, and tertiary effects. Um, you can look at budgeting a little bit better. Like it, it, it lends itself, um, 
to be a lot better of an end product and more manageable of a project if you go into it knowing what the end looks like. Yeah. So you have some amazing course offerings for sure. And night vision is something that is very, very intriguing to me. So I was very excited to see you offer classes for night operators. Obviously, the barrier to entry on NOGS is still pretty high. I know it's not ideal, but what are your thoughts on the use of a single tube, let's say a bump helmet to get started? This is admittedly an area that I don't know too much about, but I'm curious as to what your thoughts are. So two things on that. Um, One, dude, we, I mean, there's a lot of guys that did a lot of work with a single tube, right? So don't let the, I mean, is it ideal in today's day and age in, in 2022? You know, hell no. Ideal is, you know, Panos, right, uh, right, but, yeah. you know, or, or a good set of dual tubes. But at the end of the day, I mean, if it's something that you're interested in, uh, you know, we talk in this industry or the 2A a lot about, you know, self-reliance and um, safety and everything like that. And I'm, I'm nobody's, you know, parent or anything like that. So I'm not here to tell people what to do or not to do, but, you know, unless you have like a true dedicated uh, mission, yeah, I, I mean, it's not an inexpensive endeavor to get into. No, no, not at all. Yeah, you know, I look at people, and I'm not telling like this is not like oh, civilian should know. Like, no, hell no. Like, if you can have it, bro, like scroll by all means, bro. Um, but I've gotten the opportunity to to experience it once. I I talked to Mike about it at one. It was recently, and it was the coolest thing ever. And then when I heard how much the whole setup that I was using cost, I was like, uh, no, thank you, not right yeah, now. <laughs> so like, yeah, I'd, I'd much rather fund you know myself and my wife's IRA for that that year. You know yeah, I mean? yeah, like yeah. I'd rather max out those those four like those contributions uh, than than pay for you know a twenty thousand dollar setup. Right. Right. So, yeah, and I think, a, that's, a, I think that's, I think that's like minimum practitioner yeah. hobbyist. There's it's there like people are like, Oh man, if I show up to a class without me behind net, like, can you see in the dark and can you aim your gun with a laser? The answer is yes. And you're in the right place. So speaking of laser, uh, I really have just started looking into this and trying to educate myself a little bit just to really be more well-rounded. But can you explain to me the role of the IR laser illuminator in night vision operations? Cause I, I sort of understand that it's part of the kit, but I don't quite understand how you actually apply and use it. So super 35,000 foot view uh, of this, right? So your IR illuminator is, for lack of a better word, like an IR flashlight, right? Um, some, depending on what system you're running, some illuminators are like with a mall, for example, some illuminators have the laser slaved with them. So depending on which mall it is or what programming you have in that, you know, typically you're going to get the laser in the middle of the illuminator. So the illuminator casts enough IR energy in, depending on what angle, specifically with the mall, their preset gates uh, to set the angle of the beam divergence. Whereas like your, your NGAL, your APIs, et cetera, you're going to be able to control that. You guys remember like old mag lights used to be able to like control the beam. by like Yes. Burning. Yes. Sort of the same idea. So the PET 15 that does it on the front end, just like an old mag light would do the NGAL, um, We'll do it on the rear, right? So it's just a little knob. So let me slow you down a second. So, cause you're throwing a lot out at me. And so when you say, cause I heard this in my research, when you say mal, that's, is that the actual sight so the on mall, the gun? So the um, uh, an actual product made by BE Myers Co out of uh, Redmond, Washington. So it stands for module advanced weapon laser. Um, it's a, extraordinarily ergonomic device and it was one of the first uh, i believe one of if not the first like v-cell um 
based uh, Blazor Illuminator. And so they, we actually, one of the guys here, Rudy, was actually part of the end user design guys or end user feedback guys for that when he was developing it when he was out of first group. Um, so we've been, you know, we're, we're fortunate enough to work with them very, you know, very often and, and kind of very early on in the mall's development. We're also fortunate in the fact that we're one of the few ranges in, you know, the Northeast with no night uh, restrictions, no caliber restrictions, no full auto restrictions. And so with that in mind, we, we also get to work with a lot of other companies when they need to schedule space for research development, test and evaluation. So we're very familiar with a lot of the stuff that's on the market or coming to the market shortly. Um, so to get back to your kind of base question, right? Your, your lasers are usually used for either illumination for searching or for aiming. Uh, there is a technique also called passive aiming where you're going to look through your day optic using your night vision. And some setups are more optimal for that than others. Um, the laser by far and away is still the primary uh, aiming device for most guys. And so what you do is kind of keep the gun shoulder you try to build the most stable position possible. And then you use the laser and the illuminator to ID your target and aim your weapon system uh, and then fire it like that. So the, one of the downsides to that is, is that Am I correct in that if your IR laser is on and your opponent is also using IR, they can see it? In general, yes, uh, but it comes down to best practices. So one of the things that we'll harp on and, and most most every other instructor I know that teaches night vision that's worth their salt is going to do the same is your order of operations for engagement, which is like see or perceive a threat laser on, engage, laser off, and then move. It's very similar to white light tactics. Correct, yeah, uh, yeah. yep. So one of the advantages I understand of, of a monotube is the, tell me if I'm wrong here, is that you actually could use the eye that is not uh, that does not have night vision to actually look through your normal dot. Is that true? Uh, yeah, and so that's kind of like one of the techniques taught, and, and it depends on which technique you kind of follow. Some guys like to have it behind their dominant eye so they can do passive aiming like that. Some guys, mm. you know, I came up, we were taught to use in our non-dominant eye um, so that we, you know, we would be able to have uh, an eye that was capable to go white light uh, if possible, right? I mean, there is no way of looking at the Marine Corps we were issued to ACOG. You know, I'd rather, you know, close my hand in a car door than try to passively aim through an ACOG. So, um, it wasn't a technique that we were pushing a lot. Uh, we also didn't have a super... Um, advanced opponent uh, in terms of the level of technology that they held it was definitely not the near peer environment we're seeing in, in Ukraine or other places like that. Alex, I have one more question on this topic. Uh, the the one time and only time I've ever gotten to experience something like this, I had one nog for thermal and one tube for IR. And that was pretty wild. Dude, there's a ton of options. Like, so fuse is definitely uh, the future. I, mean, I couldn't believe my, my brain could process it. Yeah, it's and and setups like that are great because you can see both. Um, we do a lot of our law enforcement training. We always talk about thermal uh, for you know rural mounts and stuff like that because you're going to be able to see a little bit better. There are options out there that can combine like the Cody or E Cody uh, from Optics One. It's like a um, a clip on thermal imager that goes on uh, in front of your night vision device. And so it, it sees in thermal, but it will project a IR image onto your lens. And then you can kind of see through it like that. And then there's dedicated fuse devices um, where the thermal and the IR are built into the same unit. Okay. And you could like toggle between them. 
Yeah, it's, it's like predator vision. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So uh, on, I'll change up the subject a little bit. Um, I, I'm really, you mentioned O'Neill uh, um, uh, Rally School up uh, when you first were talking about, um, you know, the property that you're at now. And I was reading that you did a rifle and a race car event, and that was right up my alley. Um, you know, bringing other skills into to shooting and, and training, I thought was a really cool idea. Now I, you know, I, you've kind of hinted a little bit as to, you know, how that, how that happened. Um, but what is that relationship like? And do you get to get in some cool cars? Like they got a drift school, they got like, can you trade, can you barter some tr- gun training for some driving training? <laughs> uh, so we work pretty hand in hand with those guys. Uh, we're pretty tight. We are two, two separate businesses, uh, different ownership, et cetera, but we are strategic partners. Um, we, uh, we toss work back and forth to each other. We work with each other on a lot of projects. You, um, I could be up there for a week, like a month, probably. <laughs> there's no better pairing for you, Keith. <laughs> yeah, this, this is like leave, the best right? pairing uh, ever. Yeah. But have so, an airport for me to fly into. And I'm yeah, like, excited. as a matter of fact, we have three registered LZs on the property. Uh, no shit. <laughs> so the, uh, and, and there's, there's, uh, uh, actual airport eight. Miles Are they away. grass runways? Uh, no, there's an actual paved runway eight miles, um, eight wow. flight miles away from us. Oh, that's not bad. Okay, cool. So, yeah, we, we've got everything, bro. Um, no, the rally school is is one. Rally's not as big in America as it is in other places no, in the world. No, and but they, they offer some other really cool courses besides just that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they do, you know, we, we there's an off-road, um, like a dedicated off-road package. Mostly that's done for the security courses. And then obviously there's a security government level training. And then there's the like drift school and there's other stuff that they run too. Uh, but I, I think that rally and the way that they teach it specifically, um, it is, it is true. Chaos. Like, no, not at all. <laughs> they teach you and their, their program. And this is actually the part that's been, super beneficial to us as a company is being able to grow up as like the kid brother across the street Yeah, is that we've been able to see how they built what they built for the last, this year was their 25th anniversary. Um, and so we've been able to see how they do what they do in a way that it, it breeds consistency in the program. It's not personnel dependent. Um, it's, you know, super focused on the client, the customer experience. I mean, they are the like gold standard of, you know, uh, customer service, customer experience and, and running the training. Right. And so, um, being able to observe that and to, to work with those guys and sort of have that as our, uh, model, if you will, as we, as we kind of grew and, and, you know, contractually as our model, um, was a huge leg up for us, I think, versus a lot of the I, other people. I agree. I think it's so cool. You go, you shoot some rifles and then you get to take some laps in a rally <laughs> course. Like I don't, I mean, I definitely would want to drive, but I could totally understand at least getting some laps. I, rally driving is one thing that, you know, honestly is a little, a little scary to me. I mean, you're, you know, so the cars, the way they teach it in the car control, I mean, I, like my kids, as soon as they turn like 14, they will be going through that. Yeah, of course. You, the earlier you get them in there, the better. I agree. Uh, they're just, it, the way you learn to manage your control, uh, car control on loose terrain, ice, rain, you know, and the cool part about that facility is sort of similar to ours. Like ours is a purpose-built facility, right? Like if you look at our stuff, there's, we have built certain infrastructure to be able to support certain courses so that the students can best get the thing that we're talking about in a curriculum. A lot of times if you go to courses, 
guys were like, oh yeah, so it'd be just like this, but we can't do it here. Yeah. We don't have that problem. We can do that. Right. So with them, you know, Tim O'Neill, the founder, um, he, like he went around, he basically kind of plotted or designed every corner on that facility to mimic a road condition that he wanted you to get the training from. Okay. So whether it was decreasing radius off camber, whatever the uphill, yep. downhill, whatever the case may be, that corner is there, not just to be a corner. It's there because there's a technique there that you're going to apply mm-hmm. to understand the car control in that corner. And so again, like I said, for us, uh, it was a hugely beneficial thing to see and witness and be read into the behind the scenes and, and to how they developed their facility. Um, and so I, I just, yeah, they're, the guys over there are awesome. They're fantastic guys. They they offer a fantastic product or products, uh, and we're very, very fortunate to be associated with them. So a couple of things, staying sort of on this topic, but kind of tying it into what you guys do as well. So first off, we'll, we'll stay with O'Neill for one second here. I, I see that they have uh, some some courses. They're more like government courses, but <clears throat> I had a I had a small little stint in law enforcement and one of the things that I got to dabble in just, just enough to wet my whistle, but was, uh, sort of like tactical driving, evasive driving, that kind of stuff. Yep. And you, you mentioned earlier about, you know, this community is about like self-sufficiency. Would they offer that kind of training to civilians to kind of teach civilians how to kind of keep themselves, get get out of situations? And is that something you think that they would offer or they don't really do that for civilians? It's so it's not something that's on their, their general menu, right? But it's there. We do a lot of partnered courses and it's probably something where we would, we would take the lead on that and put it together and then, you know, work with them to, so to put it on. that's right. a perfect so segue it's, into so my it's possible. Yeah. That, that's, <laughs> that's a perfect segue into my next question. So considering your relationship, have you ever considered teaching vehicle combatives? And if so, you know, what types of training would you include in that? And, and would it be open to civilians? If that's the first time you've ever heard of it, Mike and I, you can take credit for us. We just get the first class. <laughs> <laughs> so uh we do have a very in-depth vehicle curriculum Damn. Um, one of the things that we it's it's a uh it's a contractual based course we run it mostly for for government and honestly part of that's just the cost right the cost to put on a real course like that is is oh, extraordinarily yeah. high it's yeah. astronomically high the cars insurance all that shit. Yeah. yeah i mean just the amount of cars that we burn um, you know, renting uh, additional tracks of so renting pavement tracks and moving everything. It's, it's a huge logistic administrative burden. Um, and the vehicle side right now, uh, the stuff that we teach for vehicle, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of vehicle courses out there right now. Most of them do, uh, or not most of them. Well, actually check that. I will say most of them do an extraordinarily poor job at understanding vehicle, uh, operations. There are a couple that I think are kind of coming at that subject from opposing angles that I think are pretty good. Um, but it's just, it hasn't been something where we've seen um, demand like crazy uh, for that. For for us, we're also kind of strapped with our, our schedule as is. I will say we do offer one class. Well, check that. We tie in vehicles and performing around vehicles in a lot of our classes. Okay. Um, there is a class that has a lot more dedicated on the open enrollment side. There's a lot more dedicated vehicle work. 
Uh, one is going to be the low vis pistol class, which is our concealed carry pistol class. Uh, and then the other is going to be our uh, close quarters carbine class. Uh, and that is, it's not specifically to be working in and around vehicles. It's just, it's meant to be uh, a flat range warm up for like CQC or going in the house. Um, and so it is that last hundred meters to target. And so a lot of that that we work on is around the structures, around vehicles, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's, that's kind of where we're at on that. Like I said, we, we have a very in-depth, detailed vehicle curriculums of guys that are listening to this podcast or, or with certain units or agencies that are looking for that. We absolutely do offer it. Uh, it's just something that, you know, it has been, I don't know if the market would bear the cost is really where we're at. Okay. Okay. An- another article that I had read uh, that you participated in and uh, getting ready for our discussion tonight was uh, surefire uh, field notes. And it was on the max point blank theory. Yep. So I think I understood your point pretty well. Um, you know, and I'm going to really dumb this down, but that idea to hold high outside of um, your projectile zero, you know, within varying yardages um, with this sort of 12 inch zone in mind uh, to shoot faster makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but I know you can do a better job at trying to describe that for our listeners than I can, but am I sort of on the right track there? Yeah. So, I mean, to, to, to put it in the easiest terms ever, right? So, like, if you were to hold, so as everybody knows, bullets don't fly in a straight line, right? They right. Like a um, that, the height of the arc or the severity of the arc is equated to the distance to target, right? So, our bullets, so I always like to do a demo in class where I'll take keys or a marker or something, and I'll stand a few feet away from somebody and I'll throw it at, with a certain amount of, of force, right, of velocity. And it'll hit them in the chest and they'll catch it and then they'll throw it back to me. And then I'll take a few steps back and I'll throw out the same thing and it'll land at their feet, right? And what it does is I had the same projectile that fired at the same velocity, but I didn't adjust my departure angle, right? That 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 max ordinate or the high part of that arc. Now at a certain point from zero, so from zero to a hundred, most of us are running hundred yard zero, especially on magnified optics. Um, you're, you're just making up that bore height, right? So you're bringing together that line of sight and that line of bore so that they meet at a certain spot. And with a hundred yards zero, um, what's going to happen is once it gets beyond that hundred yards, it's going to, to fall below uh, that line of sight. You're not going to have, um, uh, you're not going to launch it any higher, uh, unless you dial it on. Right. Uh, right. And change zero. So there's a point where if you dial on a certain amount or hold a certain amount, uh, of elevation, whether it's mills or MOA, that to a certain distance, your maximum ordinate or the highest part of that trajectory or that arc won't be enough to get outside of the plate on the top edge. Right. Okay. And then as it continues to drop, it's going to come back closer towards the middle of the target. And then it, the farthest end of its trajectory, it'll come out towards the bottom of the target. So like, if you can imagine instead of one target imagine a cylinder from you to forever right at some point you can dial up enough so you're stretching your zero as far as possible or all you have to do is hold center of the target and shoot the bullet will climb up towards the top and then fall all the way back down towards the bottom when it leaves the plate so you're almost you're almost saying like you know you know you're you know 300 yards out of zero or 200 yards out of out of your 100 yard zero and so total of 300 
And uh, similar. So all, all we're doing is figuring out, okay, at there's the, you know, as we're, we've added elevation, well, we also know that gravity is pulling away from it. Right. Yep. So I'm like my 200 yard elevation data on like my SPR, for example, is like a point, uh, a point four. Okay. okay. So if I had one mil dialed on, I'd be 0.6 high 0.6 at 200 yards is four inches. So I'd be four inches high from center on that plate, which would still put me inside of 12 that inches top six inch yeah. half that I have to play with. So is this basically the idea of, I, I understand the, obviously the arc, right? So at the beginning and the end, the, the bullet is quote unquote low, the projectile is low, but at the top, it's going to be high. And this is what would create your hold over your hold under typically, correct? If you're closer, you're going to have to hold under you, depending on size of target, right? Yes, so yes. That's what it comes down to. So yes. if you don't care, like I mean, if you, no. If, so that's I'm sorry. Let me I, let me just finish the thought. So that's your hold over your hold under. But if you're aiming for the center mass of a, of a of a human being, it doesn't matter, right? It, it, as long as you're in that center mass, that hold over hold under, it's not going to matter. As opposed to if you were trying to hit the ocular cavity, then you would have to definitely make up for that hold over hold under. Is that Am I kind of on? Exactly. So for example, with that, and and the reason we run the one mil flat, it's not a true max point blank, right? True max point blank is a mathematical calculation you can work out to figure out exactly what works for your gut, right. your, your velocity. We use it as a cheat, uh, a one mil as a cheat because it stacks well with additional techniques that we teach in the, the classes. Uh, and so those, it, it, makes it very easy for the shooter to process at speed as you start to add or take things off. And, and that's for, the advantage of being able to do this. Right. And so for, for an example, right? So if I dialed one mil on the gun and I held on my point of aim and fought uh, at a hundred yards and I fired, I would land roughly three and a half inches high. Right now, because it's an angular unit, the further it goes, the higher it's going to go. Right. Because it grows as an angle. Yep. Exponential gravity is taking away from that height as well. So it starts to keep me in the plate to a certain point where now for most guys with like an M4 and like an LPVO or magnified optic, usually if you've got one mil dialed on, you're going to hit point of aim, point of impact somewhere between like 270, 280 ish yards, most loads, depending on barrel length, et cetera. Um, so that's your point of aim, point of impact, your 300 yard data for most guys being somewhere between like 1.2 and one point five maybe 1.6 they got a really slow gun um so like you're gonna hit slightly low but still in the plate and so the faster and flatter your gun shoots the further this technique will carry you because Mm -hmm. your trajectory is staying flatter gotcha that makes sense yeah so listening to you talk about this uh it's very clear to me that your teaching style and the way in which you break down the lesson would be pedagogically very sound and Good word. Yeah. i'm gonna have to look that up <laughs> Let me do that real quick i went to college uh <laughs> but i read that you break your training into these three phases uh, mechanics mastery and maintenance can you elaborate on that strategy a bit and exactly how you implement that so that if, if a person were listening right now they were to come to your school how exactly does that three-point strategy apply to them as the student yep so most I'm trying to think if, if anybody isn't. I think most of the guys that teach a Ridgeline all have schoolhouse instructor time uh, for for different DOD schoolhouse, whether it's a Special Forces Sniper course, um, the Sephardic at Range 37, the Hostage Rescue course, um, Master Preacher course, 
whatever. So we come from a schoolhouse, right? And so the one thing in the military is that everybody has to go through certain courses, uh, depending on what service you're in, um, whether it's like a formal school instructors course or for the Marine Corps or like a CIFDIC for the Army, like common faculty, uh, something instructor course, development instructor course, something like that. And so what happens is they, like, they teach you how to teach according to how they want. Now, some stuff is great. Some stuff isn't right. So you have to look at a few things when it comes to teaching one, how do people learn? Right. So we all know like a basic learning model. They could be, you know, visual, uh, kinesthetic, which is a fancy word for hands-on. Um, they could be an auditory, uh, learner. Um, they could be a combination of all three. They can be, you know, they can read it, they can watch it, however it works for people. And so what we try to do in our classes to make sure that we were hitting on all of that, we follow a general template for all of our classes and everything we teach in that we, um, we don't just do drills for the sake of doing drills. Like I know a lot of classes that I have attended, it's just like, Oh, we're going to do this drill. It's like, okay, cool. We're going to do this drill. What we do is we are teaching a certain action or mechanic, if you will, with the firearm, whatever the platform might be. And then each one of those drills that we've selected are usually progressive in nature and do it in a way that allows. So one builds on the next, builds to the next, builds to the next. And what we're focusing on is we explain the the drill or the action, you know, why we're doing it and then how we're doing it. And then we'll demonstrate it. So they want them to see it. And it's not a, uh, I call it a hero run, right? It's not like, look how great I am, look how fast I am, right? Um, there's a time and place to show like the difference and how like if you do it one way, you're going to gain performance. But a lot of times if you're, and this is like an instructor thing that I see a lot of guys do is that's what they try to do to kind of set themselves as like, I am the SME. But the reality is most of your students, if they're a visual learner, if you're going so fast, they're not picking up on what you want them to see, right? Right. So that's your demonstration portion. The last one is, or not the last one, the next one is imitate, right? So the students are going to step up and execute a series of drills or mechanics-based exercises um, where they're going to imitate what it is that we did in, in a manner that they can start to have like their experiential learning. They're going to make it their own. We're going to be able to coach them, pick up the finer points and kind of like uh, I hockey stick that learning curve. And the last part is we're going to start to, with the, the final part is practice. And what we're going to do with that is allow them to add that thing that we just isolated and improved, add it back into the mix of everything we're trying to do where we can continue to make the exercises more complex. And this is all the mechanics phase. This is all the mechanics phase. And the reality is in a two day course and a five day course, in a 30 day course, you're probably not going to hit that mastery level, right? The main, uh, the, excuse me, the mechanics level is very easy to teach because that's it's basic building blocks. And one of the things that we've paid particular attention to in doing is process mapping everything that we do, so we can teach it very well. It's very consistent, and people can can internalize it quickly. Once you get through mechanics, the next part is maintenance, right? And or, I'm sorry, the next part is mastery. And that mastery phase really comes down to how dedicated of a student they are or a practitioner. You've got to go back and you've got to do it and wrap it. And, you know, I'm obviously probably the millionth instructor or whoever you've had on here that'll, you know, preach the benefits of dry fire or the benefits of just yeah. a couple practice. But that's really where things are made, right? Like you get in your car every day. I and mean, if you guys, I travel a lot, right? So if I jump in a rental car, it's not like my truck. Like it takes me a minute to like find like, all right, how does this? <laughs> Where's the windshield washer the, fluid? The button to turn it on. You know what I mean? Like it's always a little bit different. Right, right. right. I yeah. usually get in and just put it to the floor and see what blows up. <laughs> yeah. So 
you know, you, you go to find like, you know, you're like, where's this key go? And you're like, oh, it's, it's got a button. Where's that button? The button's in a different spot than my truck. I mean, something that got me the other day is like they change the shifters and like GM trucks now. So like I got in mine and then I get in the rental like Suburban and I'm like, there's buttons and I keep reaching to grab the, <laughs> uh, the shifter and it's just not there. Um, and that's because that's a habit, right? And so yeah. what that is though, is that's processing time, processing power. And so the less that you have to think about what it is that you're doing allows you to free up that bandwidth or that that sort of mental space to be able to process the information around you because everything that's inside of your control is running in the background, while everything that's outside of your control, you can start to process and diagnose it and, and um, triage it, if you will. So when you get to the mastery, you have to go put in that work so that that can function in the background. So if I'm like, I need to draw my pistol, I'm not thinking about like, you know, establish grip, defeat retention, drag, draw to position two, build my grip, press out, ride the layout, like, like ride the zip line, put the sights on target and prep the trigger. I'm not thinking about any of that. It just happens. Right. And I'm, I'm not different than anybody else. Anybody that's practiced that is conditioned themselves to that, um, is going to be able to do that without lots of thought in a way that's extremely efficient. Um, and that's that mastery phase. The maintenance phase is just like maintenance and anything else, right? Like you can't just master something and walk away from it. Right. Like if you ran a marathon 10 years ago, you ain't run them on tomorrow. You know what I mean? Right. Um, you got to keep that edge sharp and you get to keep the rust off of it. And, and so that maintenance, whether it's daily drive fire, whether it's, you know, dedicated weekend practice, whatever the case may be, you've got to put in enough so that, that, uh, file, if you will, is at the forefront of your brain when you go to run it. Right. And that's, um, that's really what those three phases break down to the mechanics phase is what you should be looking to get in most courses. The mastery phase is depend wholly dependent on the student's dedication. And then the maintenance phase is what you have to do once you get to a certain point to maintain a certain level. Uh, but you rarely, if ever will grow during that phase. And that's not just shooting that's almost any, physical skill or task. Yeah. So you offer precision rifle skills, obviously stretching out quite far. So how do you recommend uh, students keep that maintenance phase? Let's say if they go back to their home range and they only have a hundred yard range, how do they keep that up? Because very few people have the infrastructure that you have. So what I'll tell you is that a lot of our programs were developed specifically with that in mind. Um, we switched on to what we kind of, kind of chat, um, without going too far down a, a tangent here, but in 2016, I met uh, one of the other instructors here, Rudy Gonzor, and Rudy had just uh, left active duty at first special forces group. Uh, and we met up at, at uh, the 19th special forces group and he had won the international cyber competition. And we were like, Oh, you're a sniper. I'm a sniper. We just kind of best friends. Like let's, let's go sniping. Um, and so he came up like a week later, it was like, Hey, you know, the international sniper competition is coming up in like two weeks. Like, do you want to go? Like, yeah, sure. Whatever. And, right? and so they, they approved it unbelievably, but we had no training time, no ammo and no location to train. Uh, so we, we bought our own ammo or, or, you know, dug up, you know, ammo in the backyard <laughs> and we had new England style gun club ranges to train at. Like literally our first live fire event at the competition was a thousand yard cold war. Uh, we hadn't even shot a thousand yards yet with that rifle. Wow. Um, and we, 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 I think we won that stage actually. Um, but really what it comes down to is, is what we had found is that the way we trained for that event really gave us an edge because we didn't have distance. And so because we didn't have distance, we didn't have large targets or slop to play with. We had to shoot everything really tight and shoot it on paper. 
And actually John Brady, who used to run the uh, competition team for 10th Mountain, um, he used to do the same thing with his guys. And it was a lot of hundred yard work on paper, diagnosing group size to really prove what your capability with um, your weapon optic and ammunition with you behind it, what were you capable of doing? Mm. And by focusing that on different positions, focusing that at speed, focusing that from tripods, barricades, whatever, uh, stressed, not stressed, that was really where a lot of our skill was built. And so a lot of our curriculum stems from that. We, we kind of dubbed it, if you will, like short range training for long range performance. Mm. And it's funny because now, and I don't know how, how deep you guys dive in the precision rifle side, but- We haven't yet, year, it's, it's on our bucket list. Yeah. So the things like, uh, like Chris Way and stuff, like the craft drill and, and stuff like that. You know, a lot of guys are switching on to this thing of paper because match shooters have gotten so sloppy um, with the fundamentals and the PRS. And so it's a way to like for those guys to dial back. And, and we're just kind of laughing because we're like, well, welcome to the party boys. So like, yeah. this is the way to do it. Yeah. Interesting. So I want to move on to a couple other segments of the show, but where can people find you guys and, and check out all your, your cool stuff? Uh, so website is ridgelineshooting.com, all one word. Um, Facebook is uh, Ridgeline Training Center, and Instagram is Ridgeline Defense. Um, and so those are, uh, and I think YouTube is just Ridgeline. I think we were, we got lucky there. Yeah, I got all those. I think I have all those links in the show notes so people can find them pretty easy. But uh, we want to do Running Gun with you. It's a 10-question rapid-fire game. Uh, it is timed, and there is a record. So if you're competitive, you could uh, go for the title here. <laughs> well, we'll see what the questions are. All right, it better, so it better not be math. No, nah, no math. <laughs> Although it sounds like you're pretty good at the math, as long as it's tactical math. Tactical and tens, but I got ten fingers. <laughs> All right, Keith, you got a timer up? I'm ready. All right, here we go. Number one, what is your favorite gun in your personal collection? Uh, Remington 700. Uh, it's modified by Mark Gordon at Short Action Customs. My wife bought it for me and surprised me with it, and it's the gun I built Ridgeline with. What gun would you buy if money was no object? You guys will find that out here very soon. Hey, if you could have a drink with one person living or dead, who would it be? My dad. Favorite caliber? 308. Favorite hobby, not gun related? Cars. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Flying. All hell breaks loose, is it better be armed or trained? Trained. Is it better be loved or feared? Loved. Rifle, pistol, or shotgun? D, all of the above. You're in the worst scenario imaginable. Who do you want to have your back other than your spouse? Any one of my guys at Ridgeline. Let's mix it up! How did you do, Keith? Not too terrible. Definitely not the fastest guy out there on uh, running gun anyway. Um, but uh, 55.4 seconds. That's so respectable. He's, uh, Right around uh, above Allen Gottlieb and uh, Jake and Chris from the 9-11 syndicate beat him. Beat him. All right. Respectable, though, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I shoot faster than I think. It's better, it's better, to, <laughs> better to think through what you're going to say. You, it was out. a touching story about how your wife bought the gun, but that cost you a few seconds. It definitely did. <laughs> happy wife, happy life. Boys. There you go. There you go. Well, tell her she lost you a competition tonight. That's all right. <laughs> so on this episode of Let's Mix It Up, we're going to discuss carbine courses and SPR setups. And Let's Mix It Up is brought to you by Onsite Firearms Training. They have an extensive course offering and teach classes across the country. You're guaranteed to find a course to meet your needs. So check them out and get trained by the same outfit that trains the gun experiment. So uh, if people were to go to your website, they will find that you 
definitely offer a lot of classes, but some of those classes involve carbine use. And <clears throat> Keith and I, we, we both have AR-15s. Uh, admittedly, we don't use them much. We don't train with them much. We don't give them a whole lot of love. And it's something that we'd like to rectify. So could you talk about a couple of the courses and sort of, you know, the different offerings and what you recommend people start with, that kind of stuff? Yep. So we offer a few carbine courses, like you said, uh, sort of our start point um, for people looking for for like legitimate, good, formal carbine training is going to be a combative carbine. Uh, and that focuses on like your general rifleman style of carbine shooting. So you're going to shoot out to about 300 yards. Uh, you're going to engage targets uh, at the distance. You're going to get a really good understanding of different zeros and you're going to get a really good zero. You're going to get a lot of basic rifle marksmanship, which is something that I think a lot of rifle courses don't do very well. You know, standing at 50 or, you know, 50 and in does not build those skills. Um, so we focus on that and you are going to work into more of the close range stuff. So the course is kind of split equally between, you know, that doctrinal, uh, area of responsibility for a rifleman out to 300 and then, uh, closer range stuff as well. From there, the path splits a little bit. So you can go to, uh, close quarters carving, which is a focus on a hundred and in, uh, it's, you know, rifle pistol transitions, a lot of positional stuff, cover concealment, a lot of shooting on the move a lot of multiple shot and multiple target engagements. Uh, it's really meant as a, uh, or what we're, we built it from was one of the flat range shooting packages that we do for uh, CQB. Uh, so now that would be more for someone, if someone's interested in the home defender, the sort of like, you know, home and hearth, that would be more the course that they would be looking to go to. Absolutely. I would call that the finishing school. Like I said, if you show up to that course, and you don't have quality formal carbine training prior to, you're going to struggle really hard. Um, okay. But if you if you are if you're able to run your gun well and keep it up and running, meaning with loads, malfunction reduction, whatever, uh, then you can probably jump in that class and be ready to run. If okay. you're like you can't fix a uh, bolt override charging handle benjamin on your own, uh, that's the, not the course for you. Um, you need to go and, and take the combative carbine or, you know, an industry equivalent. Gotcha. Okay. So the next course, again, going the other direction, so that one's 100 in, now going 100 and out is our recce carbine course. And that's really built for those sort of like, I guess what the industry would dub today, general purpose. So your yeah. typical 14, five, 16 inch gun, the one to six, a one to eight, you know, one to four, a four by six, something like that. Like, Kind of like your your LPVO type stuff, right? Or low power variable optics. That course again focuses heavy on positional. You know, survivability is just as important as uh, lethality, and you are going to get some zero stuff in there. But then we're really going to spend a lot of time working targets at distance, uh, working volume of fire at distance, and and engaging moving targets. So we're we're very fortunate that our range has uh, we have five moving target systems at different distances and different angles, uh, and then we also have a partnership with MVP Robotics. Um, to use their Hector uh, robotic targets, which uh, sometimes we'll have for that class if it's if it's based around something else. So the idea there is is you're going to understand how to take that same rifle and take it out to four five hundred yards uh, on a, on a realistic target size, a three to four minute target. What are some of the those moving targets um, stages that you have? What are they moving at like at that yardage? Yeah, you'll have, we have targets that move at. Um, uh, well, one is is 
a flat ground so we can shoot it at you know min safe on steel or we can change it out to cardboard or whatever uh but then we have targets that go out to uh, moving targets that go out to uh beyond 400 yards oh that's pretty cool so and i so i guess i kind of feel like if i'm if i'm going to be you know given my ar platform a little bit of love i really have to decide what the purpose is well that's that's kind of where i want to go next right so you talk a lot about spr uh setups um, and that's special purpose rifle. That's what that stands for, for anyone out there listening. And <clears throat> so I have a few questions. So I have an AR, I, I built mine. Uh, it is zero match grade, anything <laughs> it is, it is, you know, pretty bare bones. It looks pretty cool. Um, yeah, I suppose not, not really, but whatever. And I, I'm actually, I've thought about, well, do I want to build something a little higher speed and, you know, a little cooler, but I'm kind of curious, like, where do you go from there and so like do you need a you know a match rate barrel what do you recommend for backup irons do you recommend red dot or lpvo like where, how would you set up or or should you have different rifles for different purposes that's where, the answer where is your headspace with this so i i have different rifles for different purposes but i also train all my rifles across almost all disciplines so what i mean by that is We'll see guys that'll come to the class. We have a lot, like we have an insanely high percentage of repeat or return customers. Um, we're very, very fortunate. Our our clients are, I think that's a unique part about small businesses. You get a, like a familial relationship with a lot of your clients. And, and so our our guys and girls support us like crazy. They, they If I could back. cut you off really quick, I don't, I don't mean to stop you where, but this is relevant. When I was looking through your courses and I was looking at what you offer, I have to say, your prices are, are outstanding. I mean, for the facility that you have and what you offer for a two-day course, I mean, you're in the roughly mid-500s for a two-day course at a phenomenal facility. So if someone is out there listening, I, I mean, I was blown away by it. Absolutely blown away by it. So when you say you have repeat customers, it does not surprise me because if the level of training is what I think it is, and I can tell that the facility is what it is, you give a lot of bang for buck. So that I just had to stop you there because I meant oh. to say that earlier. I think it's a phenomenal value. Well, I certainly appreciate that. And, and the other thing, we're not, um, we tell everybody uh, the first thing in the class and the last thing we leave, like, thank you. Like, if it's not for our clients coming, then we could not do this. Uh, we wouldn't have the ability to do it. We'd, we'd have to get real jobs. Um, but we're not, you know, immune to the fact that it's not the cost to come to a course like ours is not just tuition. It's ammo, it's travel, it's hotel, it's restaurants, it's time sure. away from your family. Like, so there's a lot of other costs that aren't necessarily seen on our website. Um, so we try to be, what do we need to, to run a business? And we obviously we have you know, Monday through Friday work that keeps us very busy as well. And so, you know, we're also at a point too, where it's like, you know, we are a new business, we're a newer business, we're a smaller business. Um, you know, we, we feel like we can offer a great product at a good price. And, and we, we, we had to go up this year just because the world is, but, uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll probably slowly climb, but, you know, it's just like any other business, it's starting out as new, but getting back to what I was saying with our, our, a lot of our repeat clients, is we'll have people that'll come back to multiple carbine courses, combative, CQC, recce, and they show up with a different gun for each course. Um, and I'm like, guys, shoot all three with one gun. Like I've shot when I proof the course is a fire, I proof them with 
an 11.5 red dot gun and I proofed them all with a 14.5 LPVO gun. And the idea is that if you always pick, you know, the, the guns like golf clubs, so to speak, a gun that is tailored to that class, um, then you've, what happens if you have the other gun and you got to do the other thing with it? Right. Um, you know, so it's, it's one of those things where I'm like, Hey, you know, you've got a quote unquote general purpose gun. What's your primary fighting gun? And take all three classes with it, or with, or if you're you're already at an advanced level, you don't need to come to combative, then uh, and take both classes with it and see what that capability of that platform is with that ammo. How far can you really go? How tight can you really keep it? And then you know a lot of the stuff translates over. So if you get better at one, you usually get better at the other as well. Um, and so that'd be my recommendation. Do in terms of like red dot versus LPVO, do they? I've always wanted to ask someone this, so I'm going to ask you. <laughs> you're, you're the guy. Do like QD scope mounts like actually hold zero and like could you swap from one to the other depending? Like is that you know, is that a thing or do they does that not really work? So I don't see too many QDs anymore. Like the LaRue's are really the only one that I can think of. Yeah. Show up ever. Uh they they do claim return to zero. I'm always a trust but verify guy. Yep. So I am like militant about zero. Um I like to say, if you're going to go get in a fight, you need to trust and believe in three things. You need to believe, like you believe in yourself. That's your training, your equipment, uh, believe in uh, your equipment and then believe in your cause. If you believe in those three things, you're extraordinarily dangerous, right? If you have doubt in your equipment at all, meaning like, you're like man, I zeroed this, but then I knocked it over or, Hey, I, I zeroed this, but then I swapped from red dot to LPVM and back. And I didn't, I didn't confirm. Right. That's doubt that's anxiety. That's that if you just look at sports psychology and sports performance, that is going to start to take up your brain power when you should be devoted to solving the problem at hand. Yeah. So like nobody jumps out of an airplane hoping their parachute's good. Right. I don't like to go to potentially fight or go through anything where I don't have a hundred percent, a hundred percent trust and confidence in my equipment. So then would you say LPVO, if, if you had to choose one, you would go LPVO over Red Dot? Uh, I know it's tough. Domestically? Yeah. If I'm being 100% honest, if you're like, bro, you can only own one. Ah, shit. I've said this about SBR, so I guess that I'm stuck with that. <laughs> um, if the only thing I have really had to do was like defend my house. Yep. I'm running a short gun with a red dot, man. Yeah. I just, yeah. I just am, you know, um, if it's like, you can only have one gun for the rest of your life. And then I'm, I'm looking more like yeah. at my SPR. I, I always look at it from like a practical standpoint, you know, the, the red dot or like for me, like I have an astigmatism. So I've been like looking at maybe going like an etched reticle, but I look at the, kind of the same thing. Like how often am I taking a 300 yard shot? Like it's really not often, you know, even a hundred yard shot. It's just really not feasible with that platform. Now, if we're talking about just kind of, I mean, Keith and I have play carriers. We have all the all the toys, but really, that's just we don't have it, nods. It's, it's larping. Yeah, we don't have nods. It's really just larping. You know, it's just fun fun to say you have the skill set or to, to to work on the skill set. But realistically, for most people, you're probably talking extremely close quarters, right? You would, yeah. I think you're. you're what is most a realistic, what is realistically an engagement you'd be most likely to have. It's probably gonna be an extremely close quarters engagement. Of course. Um, you know, one just being able to, to legally defend it. Um, you know, but also like, you know, like you said, like LARPing and stuff like that. I, I, 
it's not really my hill to die on or anything like that, but you know, I consider to me, LARPing is based upon level of dedication. When I say that, so this has been a topic we, we've, we actually talked about with Joe on the show. So for those listening, uh, Joe Dawson from Bruiser Industries uh, put us in contact with Alex, but that was the big topic we talked about with Joe. And when I say that, I, I'm not saying it like in an offensive way, like I, I'm j- kind of using it tongue in cheek, but. I, no, for sure. And, yeah. and, and, and I get that. What, I, what I'm getting at is. You we're know, we're, we're not, peeing our pants is cool. Yeah, right. Like, you know, I look at it like this, you know, if you're a dedicated practitioner, that's your, that is your job as a citizen. Right. Um, you know, uh, that's where I'm at with it. Right. Like th- this is America. Like that's your job. That's your duty. Um, it's, but if you just do it to like, to literally just like buy it, model it in your bathroom mirror, <laughs> in your closet, right. Then yeah, or like, you're not one of us. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, so there's, I, I, there's an expectation of dedication um, that I would have with somebody that is buying that stuff. Right. Uh, because I expect them to be able to defend the homeland in the event that that's what's required. Right. Yeah. That's a good way to, to look at it. Like worst case scenario. Right. But it's, I, I look at it all like it's kind of just all skill set stuff. You know, it's like, I'm going to say it right now, Keith, so I can get my mandatory out of the way. Yeah. I, I, I train jujitsu. You know, I'm not getting in a cage anytime soon. You know, I'm, I'm in my mid forties and I have uh, young kids. Like I'm not, I'm not doing that, but it's still a great skill to have. Right. So just because I'm not out there getting in fights every night doesn't mean that it's not a good skill to have. So it's kind of I the same concept. The funniest thing I've seen in a while today, it was on somebody's Facebook and it was like, jujitsu is like fight club, except the first rule of fight club is you tell everybody about <laughs> it. Very, very true. It's true for Mike, especially. Actually, the only place I talk about is this show. I never talk about outside of here, but yeah, that is pretty funny. Yeah. So I mean, it sounds like you can really take one of these courses with a decent setup, but you don't have to go all out in terms of like, it doesn't have to be like a Daniel defense, like, you know, extremely expensive rifle. You could get away with uh, a little more minimal. So I would say that you do not want to come to a Ridgeline class with an unproven setup. Okay. Uh, I, w- I will tell you that that is a recipe for pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have lots of loaner equipment. We have loaner rifles, loaner pistols, loaner night vision, loaner helmets. Like we have loaner damn near everything at this point. Um, but if you're coming with a rifle, like like we've guys that a lot of will text us about um, precision rifle. And they're like, oh, I, I built this, you know, whatever AR-10. And I'm like, have you shot a thousand rounds through it without problems? If the answer is yes, then bring it. If the answer is no, then don't. Gotcha. Um, you know, the, a lot of those guns, you know, the first 500 rounds, those guns might be lapping themselves in and starting to really gain some of that reliability on those more budget brands or budget parts. Um, you know, and again, it's a little like you're not, it's not an insignificant amount of money to come see us once you're all in. So I, the last thing I want is for you to come all the way there and then, and then not, have fun or, or be struggling because of your equipment, you know, in the precision side of stuff, you know, those guns are chambered for dollar bills at a minimum. So every time you press a trigger, it's a dollar. Right. Yeah. And yeah. If you're not getting what you want, that can be extraordinarily frustrating. Yeah. And you're also, it's not just the dollar that the round you sent costs. It's the fact that you're not learning or practicing the thing that we just taught you and are trying to impart in you. Right. Uh, and that's where I'm like, you know, come with either arrange loaner equipment with us ahead of time. If you don't have something or you're concerned about it, or just let us know at the beginning of class. Like, I don't know if my thing's going to run, but if you have the time and opportunity before class to like shoot your stuff, make sure that it works, make sure it functions. 
you're going to be in a lot better uh, position. I won't even say zero because one of the, the first thing we do every day is confirm zero. Okay. But um, like I said, I'm militant about it. But as long as the gun runs, we can work with that. Just just don't show up with unproven equipment. It's a recipe for you to not get the most out of your training. Makes a lot of sense. So, Alex, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show and talking about both your facility and the training opportunities you offer. It's very refreshing to see a facility of Ridgeline's caliber right here in the Northeast region of the U.S. It's not something we see every day. I definitely look forward to checking it out in the future. To everyone listening, we want to thank you again for taking time out of your day to tune into our show. You can find links in the show notes to all of our social media, so be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Discord so we can keep the conversation going. 